This is the Tradition Podcast, coming to you with an audio editor's note, Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs's essay, It Takes a Cosmic Village, read by the author. In this essay, Tradition's editor introduces a cluster of essays recently published in our pages, situating them in the intersection of Jewish universalism and particularism, or, in Rabbi Soloveitchik's terms, between the majestic cosmic sphere and the humble here-minded. Sachs considers how these themes are of particular import at this moment of political ferment within society at large and within our own religious community, between the polis and the shtetl. Visit traditiononline.org to read the essay and the associated content on these themes, and like Tradition Journal on Facebook to keep up to date with all the offerings in our Journal of Orthodox Jewish Thought. And now, here's our audio editor's note with Jeffrey Sachs. In one of his most significant essays, penned and published in English, appearing in Tradition, Rabbi Soloveitchik observed, Man was created of cosmic dust. God gathered the dust of which man was fashioned from all parts of the earth, indeed from all the uncharted lanes of creation. Man belongs everywhere. He is no stranger to any part of the universe. In short, man is a cosmic being. At the same time, dialectically, Rabbi Soloveitchik offered an opposing interpretation of man's relationship with the world. Man was created from the dust of a single spot. Man is committed to one locus. The creator assigned him a single spot he calls home. Man is not cosmic. He is here-minded. He is a rooted being, not cosmopolitan, but provincial a villager who belongs to the soil that fed him as a child and to the little world into which he was born. These quotes are from Rabbi Soloveitchik's essay, Majesty and Humility, which appeared in tradition in 1978. Both modes of existence are simultaneously present and sanctioned in mankind. Both the cosmic, cosmopolitan, universalist and the parochial, particularist reside within the soul of each of us, and both have spiritual significance. Both cosmic conscious man and origin conscious man quest for God, said the Rav, although they are not always aware of this quest. Rabbi Norman Lamb, showing the Rav's influence on his thinking, suggested that the philosophy of modern orthodoxy is a total commitment to the halacha while living in this world and participating in it fully. And yet he once admonished his congregants that a troubling aspect of our community is the problem of forgetting the centrality of Torah study, the vital center of our own lives. We cannot and dare not get along without some element of the overall community that is totally and exclusively committed to the study of Torah and Torah alone, he said. Elsewhere, in a slightly different context, Rabbi Lamb suggested there is no unresolvable conflict between them. Those who would remove one from the other offend the deepest tenets of our faith. It seems to me that along with a portfolio of other sugyot, such as Torah Umada, orthodoxies and freedom of inquiry, faith and science, tradition and modernity, the universalism particularism dyad is one of those topics modern orthodoxy wrestles with in each and every generation.
the conversation, debate, argument for the sake of heaven is itself a worthy goal, even as the pendulum swings or the ground shifts microscopically beneath our feet. Young people are initiated into these conversations by their older guides who steer them along. The process enables us to reach surprising new understandings about ourselves, keeping us mentally awake and morally straight as a religious community. While the dialectical dance goes on, we remember that even the parochials engage with the big wide world. For otherwise, how would they know what to close themselves off from? Similarly, religious cosmopolitans with integrity remain rooted in the intellectual and spiritual Altaheim, without which, in what way could they be discerning consumers of the best that has been thought and said in the outside world to which they remain so open? As in so much of the Rub's philosophical writing, we are dealing with a thought experiment. No centrifuge has yet been invented to spin a person out into disparate Adam 1 and Adam 2, to separate our majestic from our humble atoms. They both reside within us. We strive to obtain operative harmony and balance, even if, as the Rav suggests, the dialectic is, quote, irreconcilable and hence interminable. And yet, for both sides of the equation, if Jews, as the old witticism goes, are just like everyone else, only more so, must we be more so in some of the worst ways? I began to struggle with this on a recent visit to the United States. Although I've made my home in Israel for nearly three decades and have spent almost my entire professional life here, I always consider myself a keen observer of American Jewry in particular and American society, culture, and politics in general. Since the omnipresence of the internet and the arrival of modern modes of communication, this has been made a good deal easier. When I first arrived in Israel, aerograms and asimonim were still around, for those of you who remember such things, but they were having their last hurrah. No doubt the privilege of teaching many American students in and around Jerusalem these many years has helped my finger remain on the pulse of American orthodoxy. So after the lengthiest absence from the United States brought about by the COVID travel restrictions, I was surprised by certain changes I observed during my visit. Why is our commitment to being citizens of the world become a full-on engagement in the contemporary culture wars? Are we mindful of the damage to the fabric of our religious communities to say nothing of American society when we look upon those who vote differently as enemies of the state? Political opponents are rivals, never enemies. Consider Lincoln's warning, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. If true for fellow countrymen, how much more so for fellow congregants, those better angels to whom we are bound by love thy neighbor and the covenants of both faith and destiny. These are our brother and sister Jews whom we seek to not only talk to, but daven with. 
Yet in every community I visited, I met at least one person, and in some cases a good deal more, who said of a fellow congregant, I can't talk to that guy anymore. He's too much of an X. He believes in Y. He voted for Z. Make no mistake, these variables can be assigned with as much ease by the left or the right, a type of political mad libs, fill in an adjective, ideology, and political candidate. To be certain, the dialectical tension between universalism and particularism is not a product of the culture wars. Both Republican and Democratic Orthodox Jews can claim that they are engaged in addressing universalistic concerns. But tempering that certainty with a dose of particularism may remind both camps of the dangers inherent in identifying Judaism with any one political or social agenda. It would be tragically ironic if the Rav's brand of openness, in which we cosmic beings are no stranger to any part of the universe, serves as license to import the most divisive current elements of general society into our communities. What's more, the current political climate is not only exhausting, but spiritually distracting. Torah should always trump Trump as Shabbat table talk. Of course, what I diagnose as a disease on the body politic infecting the Jewish sphere via general society, in which we are, we are partisans in the street and in the shul, may be pointed to by some as a parochialist triumph of the Jewish villager who belongs to the soil that fed him as a child and to the little world into which he was born, that is, to Torah and mitzvot. By arguing for Jewish values in the public square, we aim to influence the big wide world and make it more like our own little village. Being a light unto the nations is, after all, a paradoxically particularistic form of universalism. Whether this is in line with how the Jewish community traditionally protected its own interests as a religious minority, whether it is effective in the long run, or whether we can ever be certain what the Torah's precise view on any particular front in an ideological or policy battle is, including in cases which may have little bearing on American Jewry or Jewish life, well, this can all be debated by people of integrity and good faith, even when those characteristics are hard to come by. But we might ask ourselves, in the name of advancing Torah values, is there no irony in the fact that particularists are completely open to the culture wars, but grow increasingly closed to culture? And is there not something wrong when modern orthodoxy's engagement with culture is more often than not really a thin disguise for sanctioning every form of leisure and conspicuous consumption instead? These issues play themselves out in Israel in different but disturbing ways as well. The Jewish state, within the memories of most of our readers, witnessed the worst form of social division, political assassination, in a perverted manner, one carried out in the name of the Torah itself. Nevertheless, the current political moment in Israel, with our unrelenting visits to the ballot box, seems to be, on the whole, strangely lacking in the vicious vigor of the public debate on the American scene. 
It is therefore not surprising that tradition, as a journal of ideas, finds itself publishing a number of essays on particularism and universalism. As a full disclosure, this editor's guiding hand did not bring this about. It seems rather that there's something in the ether. The authors in our current issue and some related material published online and in other recent issues are not necessarily motivated by the concerns I've enumerated here. In fact, had we not situated them together under a unifying headline, readers might not have noticed a common theme running among these articles. Nevertheless, the preponderance of attention to one issue, even broadly defined by a number of our community's brightest thinkers, requires us to consider what's gotten into the drinking water. This, perhaps, is the noblest role tradition can play. To be a scholarly journal, but one which aims to impact the life of a community, rather than remaining in the ivory tower. To serve as a mirror back onto our readership, helping it understand the challenges which abound, and pointing in new directions to confront them. Clearly, we do not publish policy papers, but philosophical articles. Yet we aim to demonstrate that, properly presented, there's nothing quite so potentially practical as philosophy. Whether the learned offerings in our pages might help ameliorate the ills I catalogued above is impossible to say. Perhaps they will allow us to consider ways in which we share common cause with our fellow citizens and humanity at large. Perhaps these readings will help reorient our moral compass to ask not only about our rights, but remind us of civic responsibility, including, maybe most importantly, the responsibility to maintain civil dialogue, l'shem shamayim. Perhaps they will foster more nuanced habits of mind, always a valuable asset when considering the views of others with whom we disagree. Ultimately, Engaging with these topics may remind us of the Rav's concluding charge in Majesty and Humility, one which has particular relevance for our current moment. Both our cosmic and provincial selves must recognize that, quote, modern man is frustrated and perplexed because he cannot take defeat. He is simply incapable of retreating humbly. Humility, that human virtue, in such short supply these days, may help restore the majesty of Jewish community and universal polity.